Amen. Hey, uh, I'm glad you're here today. My name is Daniel Wagner. I'm the student pastor here. And uh, thanks for being here on this maybe 4th of July Sunday. I mean, I feel like we should go back and talk to the founding fathers and be like, look, could you just pick a, a like non-floating holiday? I mean, we really want to not have to go into work on a day that's not in the middle of the week. Nobody can go out of town. Just makes it really complicated. So thanks for being here. Uh, if you're at the beach right now and you're listening online, we all hate you. So there's that. Um, hey, I, I hope uh, there's a lot of grace in the room today for me. Um, I was just talking to uh, Emily Moore over there. She spent the week in Arizona earlier, and we had the classic, what kind of heat is the worst kind of heat in the summer? Uh, I love Mississippi from here, raised here in Jackson, but uh, I just hate how hot it gets here in the summer. Uh, You know, there's the dry heat versus wet heat, what makes you, you know, really hate your life kind of thing that we talk about. Um, But there's no place like Jackson where it can be 105 degrees in a week, and you can still get a cold in the same week. Uh, So that's what I have going on right now. So if I cough, please forgive me for that. Um, And that's my best joke. So uh, I'll see you guys next week. Um, It's all downhill from here. Anyway, uh, thanks for being here. We are wrapping up this series called The Fight of Your Life. And this really uh, has been a great series for me where we've talked about a couple of things that have been really important, right? We've talked about the fight for your spouse, the fight for a good partner. We've talked about the fight for your heart. We've talked about the fight for your kids and the fight for your friends. And today we're wrapping up with something that's, that's really been a, a marker in my life. And if we're honest, I think a lot of us in the room, it's the fight for your faith, the fight for your faith. Now, when we talk about faith, there's, you know, uh, there are a lot of things we could kick around when we talk about faith. You know, we could think about faith in a big sense, a big general sense, uh, our faith in Jesus. Do we have faith in him? Do we believe that Jesus really is who he says he is, that God is who he says he is, that he was the one who created the world, that he is the one who loves you and has a plan for your life, that he died on the cross for your sins and calls you to follow him, that he's given us a better life than anything we could ever hope or imagine apart from him? Do you have big faith in Jesus? But then there's also this, this other side of faith that I'd challenge us to look at today while we look at the big question of faith. And that's this idea of faith in the daily moments of your life. In everything you do, is your life defined by faith? Right? Every moment of every day, you have decisions to make. You're crossed with an opportunity to do this, an opportunity to do that, moment by moment, day by day, second by second, minute by minute. You have opportunities to live your life one way or another way. And those things are defined mostly by your faith or lack of faith in Jesus, in a sense of, do I trust him that he is who he says he is? Do I trust him that his ways really are better than my ways? And do I trust him that he really is good? Now, look, we live in a world, well, I'll get to some stats in a second, that cries out against faith, right? There are, we are more uh, informed of things than we've ever been, right? We are going to learn more today than people who lived a thousand years ago would have ever learned in their entire lives. And most of it is going to be useless information like recipes that we'll never learn how to cook. But they're just things that we don't even care about that we're going to learn. We're privileged to a lot of information. And that makes us honestly just just really saturated to a lot of things. And it makes us skeptical and cynical as a society. So, uh, you know, the lots of people are telling us who God is and how we should care about him, what we should believe and what we shouldn't believe. But, uh, you know, maybe this is some of the ways that you think about God. Maybe you're just kind of perplexed by this idea that there's a God who could change his will, right? We read passages about people praying to God that he would change his will. He'd change his mind, his opinion about things. You think, well, really, what does it look like for God to change his will? And you might think that it looks like this, 
Got to change it as well. Everything goes to my cats, okay? So it might be, yeah, there you go. You guys are slow, okay? Everything goes to my cats. Maybe you like that. Or maybe you think, okay, God, do you really love me more than you love everything else? Do you really love me? Uh, or am I just one of another, you know, million, billion, trillion people that you've loved? And you think maybe God treats you like this. Jesus loves you. I'm sure he says that's all the girls, right? I mean, maybe you don't really feel special. Maybe you just feel like God loves you just like he loves everybody else, and there's nothing too particularly special about you. Yeah, put that down. That's really creepy. Uh, I almost immediately regret that, but it was worth it. I'm glad Robert's not here. Uh, There's this idea, right, that our faith is constantly under attack from other people, but even from within, right? Life is just not perfect. No one would sit here and say that the constant trajectory of their life has been up and to the right. Just not how it works for most of us. Life is a struggle, and in such, for us to keep our faith in Jesus is a struggle. Here are a couple of passages that encourage us to keep the faith. Here's Jude, one chapter. (coughs) Uh, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And then this next one, 1 Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Keep hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. See, here's the thing. Our faith is a gift to us from God, right? There's nothing we can do to earn our faith. No one in here, no one on earth, no one in the history of earth could ever live a good enough life to make God love them. It's just not how it works. You're probably really great. I don't know everybody in the room. I don't know everybody in the room. I know some of you. You're great, but you're just not that great. Our sin separates us from God. So because of that, right, we deserve to be apart from him forever. But God gives us a great grace. And because of that, our faith in him is a gift. So there's this gift that we receive from him of faith, but then there's this this responsibility we have, this charge we have to keep up the faith. Here's the thing. We each have to fight to keep the faith in our own life. We each have to fight to keep the faith in our own life. The temptations of sin, Satan as the enemy is pulling us away the things of the world that sneak in and try to steal us away from God, doubts that creep into our mind, hardships in the world, all these things are trying to pull us away from our faith in Jesus and the big things and in the daily moments of our life. They're trying to pull us away from our faith in him. So for us, we have to fight. And for us to fight, we have to realize that we are indeed in a fight for our faith. Now, if you're sitting there and you're like me and you're thinking, Okay, I'll admit to you, I am a doubter. I have doubted. I have questions. Who doesn't? Look, my life has been defined by a lot of doubt, a lot of questioning. And I think to an extent, that can be a good thing. It shows growth. It shows that we want to know who God is. It shows that we're questioning, right? To seek him and seek to understand who he is and what he wants to do in our life. So doubt is not necessarily a bad thing in itself. It can lead to a bad place. We'll get there later. But here's the thing. If you're a doubter, you're not alone. Here's a survey that came out last year. It's from Barna. So they do faith, religious studies. Uh, This is 2017 numbers. So they're pretty as as new as they can get. Uh, And here's what it says. A little lengthy, but I think it's good. Questioning what you believe about religion or God is commonplace for most American adults who self-identify as Christian or who have in the past. 65%. 
26% of people say that they still experience spiritual doubt, while 40% say that they have experienced it in the past but have worked through it. Only about 35%, a third, claim to have never experienced it all. Even devout groups like practicing Christians at 19% still experience doubt, though perhaps because they are the most active in our faith, in their faith, uh, they practice and enjoy the support systems and resources of a church community. They are also one of the most likely groups to have worked through their doubt at 42%. Having come of age in a more secular and pluralist culture, millennials, here you go, bad news about millennials. Sorry, guys, I think I'm one of you. I don't really know, whatever. Uh, what, whatever, here's bad news. Just take it. If you're like me, you're used to it. So at 38%, currently experience about twice as much doubt as any other generational groups. Gen Xers at 23%, boomers at 19%, elders at 20%. Men are also more than more likely than women to experience doubt at about twice, 32% of men compared to 20% of women to experience doubt. Those who have been through college and encountered an array of ideas, philosophies, and worldviews are twice as likely to experience doubt as those who have a high school education or less at 37% versus 19%. Among those who are either currently or previously experienced spiritual doubt, the most common response for about half of them at 45% was to leave their church or worship gatherings. Three in 10 adults stopped reading the Bible and praying. Let me turn this. While another quarter quit talking with friends or family about spirituality, God, or religion. Millennials, here we go again, were significantly more likely than any other generation to stop doing all of the above at rates much higher than the previous generations. Facing spiritual doubt can also be a quiet experience. Four in ten doubters, right at 40%, didn't change anything in response to their doubt. So doubt, even though we all feel it, even though we've probably all been there, or all will be there statistically, I mean, these are just people who came forward and said, yes, I have doubted. Most of us would lie to a survey, right? Most of us are ashamed to say that we would really question who God is. I mean, here's a, gro- a quote from, you know, a spiritual great, Martin Luther. It's a, a great quote. It, it comes in a little hot, so I'll contextualize it later. But uh, here we go. There's no way in which we can show greater contempt for a man than to regard him as false and wicked and to be suspicious of him, as we do when we do not trust him. What greater rebellion against God, what greater wickedness, what greater contempt of God is there than not believing his promise? For what is this but to make God a liar or to doubt that he is truthful? That is, to ascribe truthfulness to oneself, but lying and vanity to God. Okay, so that's a little aggressive. We read that and we go, okay, that's cool. We, we get that, right? Like, we don't want to have anyone question us. We don't appreciate it when we question other people. We like to believe that people are true, they're worth their stock. But when we do this to God, right, is that, is that not a great insult that we wouldn't take the God of the Bible at face value and see that he's true in all things? And that's the tension for us, right? That's what makes us retreat in our doubt, that we get the weightiness of this, right? We know that doubt, even though it's just a part of living life, doubt, something that God invites, something that God wants us to wrestle with. He wants us to know, like he wants us to seek him in the things that he's doing. That's when we grow, when we want to know who he is and we want to know what he's doing. But doubt can be a quieting experience for us because of shame that we feel for no good reason. I broke doubt into three categories, not original with me, uh, found these a couple of places, but I think for most of us, this is where our doubt lines up. Uh, If you're not in all three of these things right now, maybe you will be, you'll probably resonate with a few of these though. 
When we doubt, we really doubt God's trustworthiness. We ask questions like, are you really up there? Are you really who you say you are? We doubt his goodness. Are you really working for my good? And what about all this bad in the world? And we doubt his will and his ways. What's wrong with my own way? And why is life so hard? We doubt his trustworthiness, his goodness, and his will, and his ways. You probably recognize some of those patterns in your own life, right? We know who God is because he's revealed himself to us in Jesus. We know who God is in the Bible. We've seen him work in our lives, but still time and time again, we doubt like we've never seen him work before. We wonder if he's really worth our trust, if he's really up there, if he really is who he says he is. We doubt that he's good. We doubt that he's working for our good and for the good of the world whenever we see bad things happen, like suffering and pain. And we question his will and his ways for our life. There's a lot of pain, a lot of hurt in a room this size. I mean, there are, in a a room this size, there have been deaths of loved ones. There have been diagnosis of terminal illnesses, right? Loss of children, false litigation, loss of jobs. I mean, there is some hurt in a place like this. And that makes us question who God is. We want to know what he's doing. And it's hard to see sometimes. One passage in the Bible that I think gives us a great invitation to wrestle with God, a great invitation to see who God is in our life in times of doubt is Genesis 32. It's the story of Jacob wrestling with God, a story we're probably all very familiar with, but we'll read through it. The same night, Jacob arose and he took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the fort of the Jevic. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint, and he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what's your name? Then he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So the life of Jacob, something that probably, you know, we're from the South, been around church, we're probably familiar with, but the story of Jacob, Jacob, one of the patriarchs, right, in the lineage of Abraham, he was an original Israelite, an original Jewish person, uh, God had revealed the faith to him. The story of Jacob is, is this, that he was born as a twin with his brother. His brother came out first, thus securing the birthright, which was a big deal in that culture. We could get into that. But basically, Jacob uh, was, was named Jacob, which is a heel catcher, is what a lot of people will define it as, but it really has another depth of a, a wrestler or a grappler, someone who fights and jockeys for position. So there's this idea that Jacob is someone who, who's always his whole life been fighting and wrestling and trying to get ahead. That he's someone who, in his own strength, is trying to get ahead. 
So Jacob has a brother, Esau, who goes out, hunts one day, comes in. Jacob pulls a trick over on him. He uh, trades away, Esau trades away his birthright for a cup of probably really terrible soup. His mom later helps Jacob secure the birthright from his father, which is another really complicated story. Jacob runs off. He goes to uh, go get him a wife. His father-in-law pulls a trick over on him. Apparently, his first wife is not a looker. He sticks around for a little while to get the cute wife. So then he's got two of them. And uh, one wife is enough for most of us. So that's probably complicated for him. And then he is told by God to go home. So that's the story of Jacob here. That's where he is. He's on his way back home. As uh, He doesn't know this at the time, but his father's getting pretty close to death. And God's been doing a work in Esau's heart, right? That he's going to be united back with his brother and greeted with open arms, even though he was promised death by his brother. So here's the thing. Jacob really, his whole life has had his back up against the wall. From the moment he was born, he started off in what felt like last place, or at least second place, which wasn't good enough for him. He always had things in his life that he could say, God, why are you doing this? God, you've promised me this, and now this happened to me. God, you promised me better. God, I knew that I was going to have better. God, you told me this, and then you went and did this. God, you said you were like this, and then you went and acted this way. God, you told me that this was going to happen, but, but now I don't see how this is going to be able to happen because of, of what's happened here. So his whole life, right, his struggle had been this, this, his story had been this great struggle where he was finally now in this place, the, the ford of Jabbok, which geographically, not to be a nerd here, but was a low place. And uh, that's the story here, that God joins us in our low places, in our struggle, and in our doubt, and in our pain. Not just geographically a low, a low place for Jacob, but it was also a low place physically for him that God joins us in our lowest place, our struggle, in our doubt, and in our pain. His back was up against the wall. He had sent all of his people ahead of him in droves, trying to appease his brother. He was saying, hey, look, you go on out, and uh, if my brother catches you, and you know, maybe you'll make it to safely face safety, but if you don't, then switch the story on him real quick and say, hey, I'm a present to you. Take these camels. I hope you like camels, because we got a bunch of them. That was kind of the thing. He was just trying to get ahead on his brother. And uh, Jacob finally sent everybody across the river before him. And he was all alone. Like it says right here in verse 24. Let's put that up. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Everything else that he had, he sent across the street. Alone, right? In his lowest moments. And I'll ask you that question, right? Isn't that how we feel in our lowest moments? Alone? in our pain, in our struggle, in our doubt? Don't we feel alone? And let me tell you this. This has been true for me. I think it was true for Jacob. I think it's been true for, for most. Then in our darkest times, we feel the most alone. But that's where God shows up. And that's where he's faithful to do work in our lives. So we've got to do the work to get alone. Jacob could have crossed the river with his people, he could have gone. He could have kept going. But he knew, right, that by being alone, by carving out this time, that he might have an experience with God. So for us, right, when we doubt, when we struggle, when we question, when we're in pain, when we wrestle with our faith, when we're in a fight for our faith, we got to get alone. And God 
may join us. Maybe not in person, but God may join us and show us what we're looking for. The next thing, Jacob had been fighting the wrong fight his whole life. See, he really had been fighting against God instead of with God. That's the thing for us. We've got to fight with God and not against God. Now, this may be a time of introspection for a lot of us. This is definitely a thing for me. I really wonder, how how much do I really fight against God instead of with God? Right? We know that God's our ally. He's our champion, right? That in the end, we have the final victory with him. But it feels like a lot of time we spend our time fighting the wrong fight. Uh, Let's put this up. And he said to him, what's your name? Jacob said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you've striven with God and with men and you've prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. Then God said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So God knew Jacob's story there. He had told him, right, you have striven, you've wrestled, you've fought with God and men, and you have prevailed. And that was the story of his life, right? That his whole life felt like his back was against the wall, that he was fighting, trying to get ahead, trying to fight, trying to make the things in his life work for himself. And uh, it was just one thing after another for him, constantly, that he was really fighting the wrong fight. That's the thing for us, right? We've got to make sure that we don't fight the wrong fight. Here, I, I think there's probably no clearer place than Ephesians 6 that we have an enemy out there that we might be fighting the wrong fight. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of the evil in the heavenly places. Now, uh, it would be really easy for me to get really weird now, and I I don't think that just because things are supernatural that they have to be super weird, Uh, not to make this a spiritual warfare thing, but there is an enemy out there, Satan, who wants to destroy you. And I don't know if we tell ourselves that enough. Right, our sin is, is enjoyable sometimes, and we love it. The things that God calls us away from sometimes are the things that we treasure the most. Sometimes we love to take pity on ourselves whenever God might be trying to lead us out of something. That's so true for me. But we have an enemy out there. Peter writes that Satan roams the earth like a lion seeking whom he might devour. That does not sound good to me. But we have an enemy. And sometimes we fight the wrong fight. We can spend so much of our life, so much time questioning God, asking him, God, why are you doing this? God, why won't you show me this? God, are you really even who you say you are? God, can I trust you? Will you follow through? Instead of recognizing right, that God is the one who, who joins us in our fight against the enemy, that Satan is the one who wants to steal and kill and destroy. We can spend so much of our time fighting with God that we forget to fight with God, right? He wants to join us in our fight against the enemy. He wants to give us victory, right? He wants to be our comforter and our healer. He wants to be the one who gives us the final victory. And uh, so many times we spend our life shaking our fist at God, questioning who he is, doubting him, instead of trusting that he's going to do what he's promised to do to us and for us. Uh, The next thing is that we don't need to fight uh, 
we don't need to fight the wrong fight, and we really win by losing. That's the story of Jacob, right? So he wrestled with God. This is a supernatural thing. You guys probably wish that I would have gotten here earlier. This is something, honestly, that I really don't even understand fully, but there's this idea that uh, God became a man in this thing, right? He took on the form of a man. This is a pre, and not to be super weird, but this is a, a pre-incarnate Jesus who came and took on the form of a, a weaker man and wrestled with Jacob, right? So this is like the original story in the Bible, maybe Cain and Abel, but maybe the second story in the Bible of someone getting jumped. Never really been jumped in my life. That's probably hard to believe. Um, I'm not that big, but sometimes whenever I stand next to tiny cars, I look really big, so people don't usually try to jump me. So I've never been jumped, but this is kind of the, the first story of that. So Jacob's hanging out on his own, and this guy comes up, and he grabs Jacob, right? The Hebrew kind of captures it better than the English does, right? It's translation. But uh, the Bible really says that someone Jacob to Jacob. So there's the great irony in that, that God rolls up on Jacob, puts him in a headlock, and they fight with each other for a little while, right? So they're wrestling back and forth. There's this this tussle between these two guys, this guy who his name really is wrestler, fighter, striver, the guy who does this his entire life. And for Jacob, he, uh, he realizes that he is probably not going to make it out of this thing. Like there's a, there's a moment where it says the man realized that he was not going to overpower Jacob. We'll get back to that later. But Jacob gets touched in the hip, which is this this. Hebrew idea that it's just a, a grace, like just a, a light touch, and his hip comes out of a socket such that it stays like that for the rest of his life, and uh, he's left with a mark there. But for us in our fight with God, we really will spend so much time fighting with God, trying to assert our authority that we're the best, that we deserve to be the Lord, the God of our own life, that we deserve to be the kings of intellect, the ones who decide how the world works, what justice looks like, how things deserve to go, whose will and ways should prevail, that uh, we really end up losing the fight because God is God and we're not. But in our life, we really win by losing. Right When we submit ourselves to Jesus, when we surrender to his lordship, when we let him run the show, right, that's the victory for us. And then that we'd be built up in the fight, right? That we would be built up in the fight. There's this idea of blessing that comes from this, right? That Jacob was given a new name, right? That God would say, you're, you're no longer this guy who's trying to get ahead. You're no longer this guy who's always down on his luck. You're no longer this guy who always has to prove himself. That's not you. You're not that guy anymore. Now, you are Israel. You're the one who's wrestled with God and with men. You've prevailed. You've won. You fought for your faith. You fought for your life. And you are the victor in this. When we really go to God with our doubt, with our question, with our struggle, he joins us. And it might take a while, but he shows us right, who he really is, what he's really doing. Look, it's not easy. I've had some things in my life that I really would rather have not been through. I'm sure that's true for a lot of you. But what we get out of it, right, the time we spend with God, the fullness of his character that we see, 
the ways that he comforts us, the things that he does for us, man, those are worth it. But we could miss it if we're not looking for it. We've got to fight the right fight. We've got to realize that we really win when we lose, when God's in charge, when we put him in charge of our life. And realize that there's something for us to gain. Uh, there's a, a guy who lived in England uh, in the 1900s, a guy named Kenneth Clark, really smart guy. Yeah, there you go. He looks like a smart man. Uh, he's an art critic, kind of a, a cultural anthropologist of sorts, uh, a really well-known cynic. And he had this experience with God that I think really speaks to a lot of us. Um, he was in a church in France working and was just overtaken really by the architecture in the place and the stained glass and was familiar with the story of Jesus as someone who had done European art, right? Bob Peenbaker sitting right there. There's a lot of, a lot of the story of the gospel woven in art. And uh, this guy had this experience where he really encountered God. Uh, he reflected on it later in a biography where he kind of came to terms with the split of a tug of God on his life and a decision to go one way or another way. Uh, this is what he wrote, if I can find it. Here we go. I felt as if my whole being was radiated with a heavenly joy more intense than anything I'd ever experienced before. And it was wonderful. As wonderful as it was, it caused an awkward problem in terms of my action. You see, my life was far from blameless. I would have to reform. My family would think I was going insane. I began to think that maybe it was delusion. For in moral terms, I was completely unworthy of such a flood of grace. So gradually the effect wore off. I made no effect to retain it but I had felt the finger of God. Of that, I was quite sure. So for us, many of us are familiar with things just like that. Right? There's a moment in our life where we know that God is really speaking to us. Right? We can feel it almost in a tangible sense, but we know what it would mean. Right? Maybe sacrificing our pride. Maybe sacrificing the way we've been living our life. Maybe sacrificing uh, an idea, a structure that we've built up or a lie we've held on to for a long time. And we're just not really willing to let it go. And what a shame for this man and, and what a shame for us, right? If, if the big faith of our life would be defined by that, that we would see the grace of God, right? That we would know we were so undeserving of such a flood of grace. And we walked away. But for us, right, even in the margins of our life, the seconds and the minutes and the hours and the days of our life, that there are, are moments where we have that, right, a great flood of grace in our weakness and in our doubt. And we walked away from it. The last thing is we kind of round home. Uh, the story of Jacob left him marked with a limp that he carried the rest of his life. And here's the thing for us, right? To struggle for your faith, to wrestle with doubt, 
to find your place and struggle in pain. It takes work and it may not be easy. It hasn't been for me. It hasn't been for most of us. But uh, this is really my prayer for you and I, I think something that we find in scripture that we would embrace the change that comes with the fight. That we would embrace the change that comes with the fight for our faith. Just two verses here in Genesis. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Here's the thing with Jacob, and here's the thing that I think is really true for you and for me. Right? God cannot comfort us into a transformed life. That's just not how it works. He can't comfort us into a changed life. Right? He really has to wrestle us into a transformed life, into a changed life, a life that looks like him. That's how it works for me, at least. You guys might be better people than me. You might be more humble than me and more inclined to make your life look like Jesus. But for me, man, there have had to be some things in my life where I've been found out, where I've reached the limits of my intellect, where uh, life has just not gone the way that I've preferred it would. And in the moments, I've hated it. Gosh, I've hated it. But on the other side of those things, man, that's where I've really seen God. That's where I've seen him be good to me. And that's the story of Jacob. Right, that he would leave a place and he would say, from now on, everybody is going to know this place was the place that I've seen God face to face. And he changed who I was. He made a difference in my life. So for us, as we kind of land the plane, maybe you're wrestling with something. I hope you're not, but maybe you are. We're all in a fight for our faith in one way or another. Maybe it's the macro idea of faith. Maybe it's the little moments of faithfulness in your life. But I pray that uh, in your doubt and in your questioning and in your struggle, that you wouldn't go at it alone. Here's uh, the rest of that survey, the Barna survey. Uh, it's kind of how people got back on track when they wrestled with their faith. Though doubt may affect one's spiritual routines, many refuse to sort through their questions alone. 40% of those who experienced spiritual doubt went to their friends or family to find help or answers, and 19% found an ally in their spouse or a close personal friend. The church remained a refuge for one in five doubters at 22%, and 29% turned to the scriptures for support and answers. Let me say this. God, you've heard this here. That's why I love a church like Fondren Church, right? We can preach a sermon like, it's okay to fight for your faith. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to wrestle. It's okay to ask why. It's okay to not be okay. And uh, you guys have heard this time and time again. This is a part of the gospel, and I'm so thankful to be in a place like this. Uh, but God is one who invites for us to ask questions, right? He came to straighten things out for us. And uh, he came to be grace, gracious towards us. Uh, here's John 9. I love this so much. Jesus said, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, to show those who think that they see that they are blind. And isn't that so good? <laughs> Don't you just feel like you're blind sometimes? Like you just don't know? Like you just can't figure it out? Like you question God's truthfulness or his goodness 
or his will and his ways. And you just don't know. And Jesus is a friend to you. Right? He's here for us in that struggle. Right? He knows that that's who we are and how we're inclined. And he came for us to show us who he is and what he wants to do in our life. And then for us, for one another, right, in the seasons where we see our brother, our sister, our friends, right, the people who are in our life, when they question, when they want to know who God is and what he's doing in their life, whether they know him or not, uh, here's another word from Jude, our responsibility to one another. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. The end is really weird there. Here's kind of the idea behind it. It's this idea, yeah, that doubt, that sin, that uh, living in things apart from God, uh, outside of his will, right, that those things are things that can get us, uh, that there are things that can pull us in. Uh, But praise God, right, that he's one who sends us to people who need him, that he calls us to love one another. He calls us to restore people with grace. He calls us to love people like he's loved us. In this great wrestling match that we find in Scripture, where God became weak, we're reminded of the cross, where God came down, Jesus took all our sin, sacrificed himself, so that we wouldn't have to bear the punishment for our sin and the life that he deserved we get to live and the death that we deserved. He died for us. If you guys stand up, we'll pray.